Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run companies with a special focus on micro-private equity and permanent capital. You can learn more at thinklikeowners.com. This episode is unique and is a joint episode with Karen Spencer from SearchFunder, Walker Dibel, and myself, and is something I'm calling Author's Chat. I recently sent out a survey to see what listeners and readers might enjoy hearing most, and many of them said that conversations with authors of books relevant to MicroPE would be interesting to them. This is one conversation along those lines. Karen and I's guest, Walker Dibel, is an acquirer of seven businesses, author of the book and site Buy Then Build, and is an active investor and advocate for entrepreneurship through acquisition. This conversation focuses on his book and lessons and stories from his investing and operating experience. I hope you enjoy your conversation, and if you want more episodes with authors, please let me know. Learn that you have acquired seven businesses across a broad spectrum of fields. Are there any acquisitions you regret that you weren't able to make happen? It's one of these where, like any funnel, right? I mean, there's always a lot that you look at, and then there's a lot that sort of move through, and for whatever reason, they might fall out, you know, along the way. Um, I would say at every stage, there's going to be um, opportunities that uh, that I haven't been able to capitalize on. So, for example. Um, uh, there was one that got pretty far deep into the into the funnel and to the point where I made an offer. I was the only potential buyer, uh, but it was a startup company that had fallen on hard times. It was a tech company, and I was trying to um, leverage my existing customer base with the technology that they had, right? And um, it was it was more affordable for me to buy it than to start it up. And it was one where we just couldn't come to terms with the valuation, the future, very future looking, and I was actually get that get that done. Uh, the biggest one though is probably, or I should say the most common, is one where uh, you know I'm looking at a business, it's one that I really want to buy, I make an offer, and I'm just outbid for whatever reason. That's probably only happened about three times, but each one of those times is you know very clearly memorable. And it's, it's, you find yourself in this position where you're kind of reacting to it, like you're calling the broker going, hey listen, I mean you know if I, if I increase the bid, you know, 5%, does that just get this done? Or like, where are we? You know, and it's kind of these, you know, you're on your heels, it's an act of desperation, but uh, uh, you know, yes, at every stage. And there was one where I really wanted to buy, but the timing was wrong for me. Um, and then that seller ended up not wanting to sell anyway. So again, you know, it, just at varying points in the, in, the, in the funnel in terms of what actually hit. Yeah, and I think that's gonna be pretty common for people that, that, uh, that buy, right? So are there any acquisitions you made that you regret having made? I, you know, I don't want to go into detail because, of course, there's other people involved. Um, yeah. But uh, I would say that it was a smaller acquisition. It was maybe the smallest I've ever done. Um, it was um, a kind of what I just described. It was a little bit of a growth through acquisition. And, you know, in B-School, you know, they kind of talk about, listen, a lot of the, a lot of the M&A activity doesn't actually capitalize on the value that they think they're going to get from the acquisition. And let me explain why that is. Da, 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 da. And then like one of them is like culture, you know, or whatever. And it's like, yeah, 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 whatever. Well, I would say that, you know, I didn't really gain the, the, the value that we thought we were going to. And um, more than anything, you know, I could probably anchor that on, um, you know, seven is a lot of acquisitions from, from one perspective. 
yeah. another perspective, it's it's not a lot at all. You know, in a way, it's very rookie. You know what I'm saying? Like I've done it, I've been around the block, but I'm I'm operating um, more as an individual acquisition entrepreneur as opposed to someone with a professional team that you know has this sort of process. So I think it was in that one, um, I would do it again. It all was logical and made sense. Um, but I think it just kind of it didn't it didn't capture the value that was anticipated, probably because of you know in, in just integration and a failure on my part to integrate more effectively. Were there any kind of warning signs heading into that that you might have dismissed or ignored, or was it something where it kind of popped up later for you on the integration side? Um, yeah, the, I think it was what we didn't have. Okay, if I really dove into why I think it, it, I didn't capture that value, I think what I would say is, is we didn't have a written, um, we didn't have a written plan, right? And so a lot of times when you're in a, you know, when, when you're when you're putting together like a purchase agreement, for example, there's always negotiation back and forth. I don't care, you know, how how much everyone is, has the same goal and thinks they're doing the same thing. It's even if it's just like this. There's always some as you write things down, people want more clarification and you start to all get on the same page. We didn't do that in terms of like an integration plan. And there was really uh, me and um, a few other people involved in this integration. And it was about 30 days after the closing that I kind of came to terms with, okay, we're all on different pages. We all had different goals. We all had different assumptions on who was doing what. Um, so in a way, uh, you know, very 101 level stuff. Um, uh, at the same time, it was a great learning experience because now every time I buy a business, you know, I've got the I've got the next 90 days at minimum planned out with names by whoever's doing what and um, have learned from that mistake. And it wasn't something where we didn't capture enough value. It's not like it's not like you know, I bought a company and, it, and you know, I know of people who have bought companies and things just don't work out and it's like a total disaster. It certainly wasn't that. I don't want to paint the wrong the wrong picture, but it was just something where it was it was kind of lame, and in kind of in retrospect, you start to say, okay, was that worth it? So I want to harken back to something that you said a few moments ago, which uh, you talk about in your book, um, which is you know buying a a company um, and valuing it based on its past performance while you're looking towards the future. And you just mentioned how VCs are sort of looking at the valuation at, towards the future, um, which is two different numbers, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I guess my, my question is, um, you know, how do you, you know, how, you know, how do you persuade, um, I think, sellers that your valuation is the appropriate one. Can I, can I answer this question in two parts? That there's like a foundation I want to talk about and then we can kind of go there. I, so I think a lot that the, there's, you have to look at the underlying reasons why you know uh, startups are valued where they are. And if you look at why that is, what, what I've decided, what I've come to terms with is, is that what startups are trying to do is raise money and with that money, they're trying to build an infrastructure that then will generate revenue, okay, that is then profitable, right? So they're trying to build the infrastructure. And what they're saying is, look, I can build this infrastructure for 100, and if I build that infrastructure and it really works, it's going to go to 1,000. So instead of charging you 100, 
I'm only going to charge you, you know, 80 or whatever because I can build it for this amount, right? And so I'm going to I'm going to give you extra value and build it and then later say you're going to get all of the upside, right? Or a huge percentage of the upside because you're taking a risk on me. And so if we if we base it on I can build this vehicle that can, you know, generate 100 million dollars and so I'm going to give you a valuation of 80 million dollars. They're like, "Oh, that sounds great." You know, whatever reduce zeros, increase zeros, whatever makes you more interested. Um, with, with buying an existing business, right, um, what you're doing is you're saying, okay, I'm looking for a profitable infrastructure to begin with, and then I'm going to start my entrepreneurial journey from there, okay? Um, that's not entirely true. You're obviously bringing ideas and, and experience and whatever to it, but the point is, is you're looking for that infrastructure and matching your, your own skill set or your own vision to it. The benefit of having that existing infrastructure is, uh, one, it already has a track record. Two, there is a private market that dictates what the valuation of a business like that looks like, okay? Um, so yeah, I think that the first couple of times I tried to buy a business, the first two or three times I tried to go directly to a potential seller and kind of was along the lines of, hey, you know, look, I, I, I I don't want to be too forward. I don't want to make any assumptions, but like I would be interested in acquiring your company if you're open to it. Both times they were interested. It's like, okay, let's talk. But it, it's the equivalent of someone walking up to your house, knocking on the door and saying, hey, I'd like to live here. Can I make you an offer for you to move out? They're like, oh, yeah, this sounds great. We're way going to overcharge you, right? <laughs> the, other thing, the other thing is that it's also not, you know, the private capital markets, are not commonly understood. So I also do some M&A advisory work right now. And um, the biggest learning curve is just talking to sellers that are ready to sell and educating them on the private market and how valuations work, what their company is going to be like, right? And so what the, what's going to be valued at. So I basically say, you know, here's the range. Um, but once we start working together, we'll be able to fine tune that. But, they, you know, they start to, um, by, by, by taking their company to market, they mentally prepare themselves, and that sometimes can take months or years, but they start to understand how it works, they start to understand the valuation of their company, and when someone, uh, when a potential buyer like myself approaches a, a, a company that's actively listed for sale, then it's a lot easier because that seller's already been through the learning curve. Both times when I approached someone who hadn't been through that and I wanted to buy their company, both times they wanted 20 times EBITDA without fail. And it was just like, okay, that's, that's not how this works. <laughs> Both of those companies, by the way, were under $10 million in revenue. So, you know, it's, 20 times EBITDA was not, was not the valuation I would have given them. Yeah, I'm not even sure if I'd move out of my own home for 20 times the, the valuation. Right, right. Entrepreneurs are proud, man. I mean, these are, these are their babies. You know, we start these companies from scratch. And, you know, the few that get there, I mean, these things, they know what it takes to put into it. And they value that pretty highly. So, um, yeah, you can't blame them. At the same time, it's not market value. So in your book, you talk about you know, ferreting out when a seller is trying to scam you, particularly about the reasons why they want to sell their business. Um, do you have a specific instance that you recall of that happening um, in your conversation where you're kind of sensing that it's this, that's not the whole story coming from the seller? Great question. I, I want to I want to go a different way with this. I want to say that um, you know, especially first time buyers, the the number one question they have is, okay, why are they selling? Okay, and I guess all I'm trying to say in the book is that everyone's always worried that you know the seller is in some kind of situation where 
you know, they know that certain death is right around the corner and they're just trying to, quote, unload it real quick right before. It's been said that, that uh, before a transaction, sellers have all the information and none of the money and the buyers have all of the money and none of the information, right? And then, of course, after the, the transaction, the seller has all the knowledge and all the money, and the buyer has no knowledge and no money. <laughs> so so the, it's an important question, right? Like, why are they selling? It is an important question. I think all I was trying to get at in Buy Then Build is that um, it's, it's, it's really overweighted. In other words, there's only a couple of answers that – um, are going to be 100% transparent true. And it's not even at the fault of the seller. In other words, you know, I've got, you know, my, my spouse was running the company and they're now dead. That's a good answer. I just love that answer, right? Or like, hey, I'm just running the company and I have cancer. Like, we all love these answers. It's like, got it. Okay, no, no problem. We feel sorry for the person. What's that? Yeah, exactly. Right? It's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But at least I know the answer, right? You know, any other answer short of that. Okay, is 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 kind of it, it, it's not true, and and let me explain why. And it's it, it's because what happens in a seller's mind is a couple of things. Um, more often than not, it kind of goes like this: I got a business, um, you know, it grew a hundred percent. Then the next year, it grew a hundred percent. Then the next year, it grew seventy percent. Then the next year, it grew fifty percent. Then the next year, it grew twenty percent. And all of a sudden, me as the entrepreneur, I'm like. I can't get these 100% returns anymore, right? So it starts to kind of calm down, okay? And they just go, I don't know. I'm ready to move on. I'm burnt out. I want something else. I'm not really sure, okay? So that's one, that's one segment. And they don't say, oh, well, I was growing at 100%, and now it's only growing at 20, so I'm over it. Because they also don't understand that themselves, number one. Number two, they don't understand that as a buyer, a 20% growth, even going to 10% growth, if you're using leverage, the ROI is still insane. You're still going to get the same return as that seller, right? So they don't think about it in terms of economics, nor, nor do they need to. It's an emotional decision. Um, the other side is you know, something like, I've been doing this my whole life, and you know, even though I'm not quite ready for retirement, which is a good answer that people like, I'm going to retire. Um, entrepreneurs tend to have shiny object syndrome, right? They want to move on to the next thing. We are no longer at the time where people, you know, graduate from college or high school, go to work somewhere, and then work their entire career and retire. That doesn't happen anymore. We're to, we, we want cycles in our life, right? I mean, you know, if we're running a, you know, um, a middle market privately held firm for five years and want to exit because we built something of value, there's nothing wrong with that, okay? I got into this, I built it, I'm ready to sell, take some money off the table. There's nothing wrong with that answer, but very few sellers are going to say that, right? Um, and that period of time could be five years, seven years, three, 20, whatever it is. A lot of times the business owner is just emotionally ready to move on for whatever reason. And um, so, you know, I guess what I'm saying is buyers go in thinking they're getting scammed, okay? Thinking that the seller knows something that they don't know. And what I'm saying is 90% of the time, I just don't believe that's true. Just based on my experience, that's not, the, that's not what's happening. It's the responsibility of the buyer to identify what the business risks are and then get comfortable with those risks before they move forward. And the seller isn't going to be able to communicate all of that to you. So something you talked about a few minutes ago is how, and which is a theme in your book, is that you're, when you're buying an existing business, you're buying the infrastructure rather than creating it from scratch. 
And um, one of the examples that you give is buying the digital print business when you'd already bought uh, your dad's book printing business, being able to go out that. Um, just for our listeners, um, why don't you talk a little bit about that transaction and, and kind of the impetus behind it? Yeah, so here's what happened. Um, in 2008, I bought a book printing company from my father. And let me, let me back up just a little bit. Um, I, while I was getting my MBA at Wash, Wash U, I started a business with a couple of, of guys, and um, uh, the month of graduation, it completely failed. We were deep in conversations with Walmart, right? Like we were getting nationwide rollout. We were trying to figure out, oh my gosh, how do we get this production done? We were raising capital, all, and then it just completely fell apart, okay? I then went out into the world and was like, okay, I'm an entrepreneur, but I don't have a business. And I don't have, that was my, I don't have an idea, right? Like, what am I supposed to do? I'm like out of cycle. So I knew you could buy an existing company and I kind of went out to look for one, okay? And I completely failed to do it. Um, what I found was the private market was opaque. It was fragmented. Um, the quality of, of, you know, intermediaries was huge. Everything from an iBanker to a mainstream business broker. I mean, it was just like, okay, what am I dealing with? I ended up going corporate for a while, right? Um, I started looking for a business again uh, probably 12 to 18 months after I started, after I went corporate. And it was about that time that my father approached me and said, hey, do you want to uh, uh, come to work at, at the printing company? And I said, well, you know, why, why would I do that? And he said, well, let's just see if you show up for work on time. <laughs> so there was, there was no handouts here, okay? <laughs> and uh, so then in 2008, I ended up uh, buying the company from him. And this was an important lesson for me, and I, I, I don't want to skim over it, okay? I learned a couple of things. One, I was on the same side of the table as the seller, okay? He was my father. I completely trusted him, okay? Um, but... There were also no favors that were going to be given. If everything was going to be fair market, we were doing it the right way. So we went out together. We met with, you know, CPAs. We met with, with, um, uh, what's the word for, you know, generational um, uh, transfer, you know, people. We met with, you know, legal teams. We met with everybody who could help with this, and we came up with a 21-step plan that we would execute. And the the first step was I was getting a loan, and the second step was I was writing him a big check. Okay. Um, within a week, he was no longer at the office, okay, just gone, right? And uh, uh, his team was in place. It was, you know, the company had been around for decades, um, 80 years, I think. And so it was one of these where in 2008, print is dead with like a headline, okay? You know, it's like, you know, it, you know more people buying ebooks than regular books. You know, um, uh, shortly thereafter, the bookstores were going out of business. Um, newspapers were going out of business, et cetera, et cetera. No one in our generation was going into the book printing industry. Like, they were running as fast away as possible. Here's what I saw. What I saw was that this company was, you know, started in 1929. It had been around, for, you know, for whatever that, that, I can't do that math in my head. Help me, Karen, what is that? It, you know, 79 years, whatever it is. Yeah. So anyway, so it's been around for so long. And we go from, uh, you know, Basically, it had been it had, for about two decades. It had been kind of a flat, mature business. Okay, what I saw was because of the disruption in the industry, this company had the infrastructure of standard operating procedures. It had hundreds of publishers as customers. It had a knowledgeable workforce. 
okay, within, with, throughout the organization. What they didn't have was any of the technology that was, that was actually growing. So at the time when offset printing started to go past maturity and begin to decline, what I saw was this is the biggest opportunity since the birth of this company to jump on a growth wave and actually grow the company to a level bigger than it had been in its entire existence, okay? So looking at the underlying trends and saying this is a great opportunity. When I bought the company, uh, within, 20, within a couple of years, I knocked down a few walls. I used the cash flow of the business to you know, put in a digital book printing facility and uh, sold it to existing customers as a just-in-time inventory management you know, system. Uh, we, had, you know, we put in warehousing and fulfillment capabilities and all the rest of it. And within 18 months, it was you know, a, about a quarter of revenue. Okay? What I found was just like that entrepreneur I just described, you know, we went from zero to like 25% of revenue, and then we just couldn't quite get past it. And so I started to figure out, okay, how am I, how am I going to expand this? And I realized, okay, I am selling, you know, digital book printing solutions to traditional publishers. What I need to do is change the game and have an infrastructure that can sell to, um, let's just say, digital publishers, okay? And... I realized that you know if I built the IT infrastructure that I wanted, it was going to cost me about seven figures. Okay, one I didn't have that kind of money. At least I didn't have it to put up for risk. All you know, the only guarantee was I was going to spend a million dollars. That's it. No marketing, no extra sales. We don't know. We don't know. So I'm not going to do that. Rewind, and when I started looking for companies, I knew that I could buy a company at a million dollars in revenue. Uh, who um, I could leverage, I could bring their comp their infrastructure in and leverage it better than what they were already doing for a fraction of the cost of the build out. Okay, all right. So I started looking for I started looking for companies to buy. Um, I actually engaged a business broker in Missouri to help me do proactive outreach because I was like, look, I've learned that if I approach entrepreneurs and say, hey, I'm interested in talking about buying your company, it doesn't work. And have everything to gain by explaining to them how private valuations work, right? So they're not listening to me. So I hired a broker to go out and essentially find the company, okay? And so I came up with about 25 to 30 firms over two and a half years that it was like, okay, let's call this guy. Let's call these people. Let's call her. her. You know, let's, let's go through this list. It was everything from a startup-oriented company to very mature you know, structured companies. Over two and a half years, the 27th company was all of a sudden the perfect fit. Okay, it just couldn't get any better. We were 50,000 square feet in St. Louis. He had you know 10,000 in Chicago, uh, five to 10,000 in Kentucky. Um, and we approached him and and said, uh, look, you know, this needs to happen. Like we've got this piece, you've got this piece. We want to buy you. Da 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 da. And you know, he said, okay. And we talked for four months, and then he said, well. I love your vision. We've got to do it. I just want to change one thing. I want to buy you instead. And I was like, hey, yeah, <laughs> that's fine. I'm 35 years old. It's time for an exit. Let's go, right? And so that's when I, that's when I learned that, um, you know, actually having a growth through acquisition strategy can kind of double as an exit strategy. So um, it was, it was, it was uh, about seven years, eight years after I had owned it. 
And um, the day that I exited, uh, the, you know, all of the debt had been paid off, and so it was, it was actually the perfect time to exit. Wow. And then what did your dad say uh, that when he told me you were going to sell uh, the baby that he just gave you, yeah. that he sold to you? What I learned, though, is that when I started looking at the, at the dynamics of people that were buying companies, almost 100% of the time, it was, it was um, males buying companies from their dads, okay? And so these were the people on the inside that knew how this worked, how to do it, and all the rest of it. And it was like, gosh, if more people understood how to do this, they would do it. And it's actually a much better model in most cases than, a start, than startup entrepreneurship, right? So, I mean, that was, that was kind of how all of this came to fruition and, and creation of the book and all the rest of it. So when I told my dad what, you know, that I was going to sell the business, um, let me go back a little bit. This, this company was actually started by my great-grandfather on my mom's side, okay? And he sold it to his four kids, at which point it was like your traditional family business where one kid wanted to grow it, one just wanted dividends, one didn't want to come to work, one was drunk or something, you know? And so, and so my grandfather ended up spending his whole life like trying to buy out all of his siblings, which he finally did the year before he died, okay? And then um, none of his kids worked in it, the company left the family altogether, and the only one even remotely related was that one guy in the sales department who ended up marrying that one, the former owner's daughter. That was my dad. And so he, he worked his way up, and uh, his partner um, uh, uh, ended up uh, uh, having a heart attack at, you know, under the age of 60. And so um, all, you know, their buy-sell agreement and everything they had in place, it was pretty seamless how it went. Uh, but my dad ended up for the, with the business and ran it for about a decade. So when I when I first bought it, I I joked with all of the um, employees that it was finally back in the family for the first time in three generations. <laughs> but um, sorry sorry for the rabbit hole there. But the point is that um, uh, he was okay with it. You know, I mean, it wasn't necessarily um, the outcome that he would have chosen, um, but he understood what I was trying to do. And um, uh, he was okay with it. He had sold the business to me, so he was okay. I think it was a, a, a more of a shock and more of a surprise to a lot of the employees, which of course is you know, very sensitive. And um, uh, one of the things that I'll say I'm proud of was one of the things that, I was, that was critically important to me was that every single employee in the business had a job at fair wage the day after the closing, and that, that happened. A few people left. It was it was almost exclusively of their own doing. Um, in other words, they chose to to leave. Um, but that was something that was critically important to me that, that, that was able to to work out just in terms. That's great. I have uh, so many questions for you, but I want to sort of switch topics now. And 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 in your book, you talk about you know the need um, for future CEOs to have a sense of urgency about the process if they're going to go out and uh, buy and then build their business, um, and that uh, and, you, and you talk about how with absolute commitment, a prospective CEO can find and acquire a business within six months if they have the right mindset. Um, what was your fastest acquisition? I have seen businesses on Friday and been under LOI by Monday on two occasions. That's pretty fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, because it's, it's sort of like if you know what you're looking for, 
you're kind of waiting for it to hit, right? And but but at the same time, let me be clear, Karen. That's sort of like that overnight success story that took 20 years to get to that one overnight. You know what I mean? Like, right. like so there's a lot that goes into it. So I so I've read that you know 90% of acquisition entrepreneurs, or said another way, nine out of 10 potential buyers for an existing business never actually end up closing a deal. Okay. I think there's a couple of reasons why this happens, and the the most common that I see is that a lot of um, would-be buyers are they're tire kickers by nature. They almost are ex- they're they're almost expecting the seller to come in there like an entrepreneur with a slide deck pitching them on why they should buy their business, and that's not what's happening. First of all, but they have this very laissez-faire sort of "I'll oh, know it when I see it" kind of attitude, right? And it's it's uh, no, that's not how this works. You're not you're not actually going to get anything done. And I think that part of the reason why I'll speak from my own experience. Part of the reason why I've been able to to buy a number of companies is simply because I work with a sense of urgency. I'm trying to get it done, and whenever I get to a certain milestone, it's uh, real yes, real no, real next steps, right? And the thing I always ask myself is, okay, what would need to be true in order for me to move forward? And that, that, that paints for me so clearly exactly what I need to get answered so that I force myself to move to the next step, right? So, you know, all of us have this kind of like, wow, I don't want to make the biggest investment of my entire life kind of thing, <laughs> you know? We all have this, okay? There's a lot at risk, you know? And, and um, you know, if I get one criticism, it's, it's that, you know, I'm promoting people take on debt. Well, you know, yes and no, right? I mean, there's a lot that goes into that. But the, the point is, I think that a lot of people aren't really committed. They're not committed. They don't have a process that they're working with. They don't have a sense of urgency, and they don't have a timeline. And if you are committed to buying a company in six months, you can get it done. Now, don't make a bad decision just so you can get it done in six months. But what I'm saying is a lot of times you will, you, will, you will sell more than you would have if you have a bigger goal than if you have a, a lower goal, right? So in other words, let's say you close in nine months. Well, you may be closed in nine months because you were targeting six. If you're targeting 12, there's no way you're ever going to buy a nine. It just isn't going to happen. Uh, so um, actually, you, you just mentioned mindset, and that was a large part of, of the book. That I, I really enjoyed that. And you talk about the law of the three A's. I think our um, listeners would be really interested in hearing your perspective. Yeah, so attitude, aptitude, and action, right? So, so I put together kind of a prep funnel, because when I sat down and sort of tried to unpack, like, okay, how do I think about this, and how does this go, right? It, it's so much goes into the preparation and knowing what you're looking for. I was um, I was hired by some clients to help them find the right business. This was before the book came out. And we got together and I started asking them like, okay, what's your skill? What are your limiters? What are the things you're kind of looking for? And go, you know, It got to the point where I said, okay, you're looking for a business with this growth opportunity. And they looked at each other and then they looked at me and they said, we should have bought that business that we almost bought, but we just didn't know. They were standing in the right business. It was biting them. It was theirs to close, and they didn't know it was the right thing. And so much of it just comes back to preparation and understanding the three A's, okay? Attitude. So what makes a successful entrepreneur, and you know, um, do, I, am I, do I have that kind of makeup, right? So, some, so I'll go talk to rooms of people about this, and often I'll say, okay, what are your questions? Why did you come here? Like, I'll, like 
especially if it's an elective and I'm not walking into a class. It's like all of you came here to be, for a reason. What do you want to learn? And no matter, every time someone stands up and says, you know, I, I'm an MD or whatever it is. I don't know that I have the skill set. Do I even have, you know, what it takes to do this, right? That's where attitude comes in. And so I worked really heavily with, you know, David Weller at Leadership Alliance to just figure out, like, okay, what does the data suggest? What do we know about successful entrepreneurs and what makes them successful? And there's a couple of things. And if you really were to boil it down, um, it's, it's a driven entrepreneur around a good opportunity who has a growth-oriented mindset. Okay, growth being I'm going to learn from my mistakes. You know, I can, I am the right person to solve this problem, as opposed to, oh my gosh, print is dead. We're you know we're going down the tubes. Um, you know, got to get out quick. I, I don't know, whatever. You know, I'm smart or I'm dumb. You know, whatever these kinds of you know um, on-off switch sort of sort of concepts are. So that's what that's what the the attitude portion is all about. Aptitude is what is your skill set? Are you skilled at B2B sales? Are you skilled at operational efficiency, financial engineering, online marketing? What? I mean, we, we all have so many different things. You know, search funder, on, building online communities, you know, whatever it might be. The point is, is you've got, you know, the risk is not, not in the business. It's in the entrepreneur plus the business. Because those two together are going to be the future, right? And so the business needs the entrepreneur that can trigger the growth opportunity of that business. And so the entrepreneur needs to know what their skill set is and apply it to a growth opportunity and then find a target that matches that, okay? That's what the, the aptitude is all about. Um, action is simply what do you spend, what do you want to spend your days doing? What do you want your days to look like? Let's go back to the B2B sales rep. This person wants nothing but windshield time, right? I mean, they want to be in their car driving around. You know, everyone at the facility sees nothing but taillights, and they're just out making it happen, right? Well, that's great, but you better have an operational guy, you know, an, oper an operator back at the facility to make sure that that can, can sustain that. Maybe you're an Internet entrepreneur, and you just want a, a four-hour workweek lifestyle business. Those are for sale. You just need to understand what you want your days to look like and be able to, you know, weave that into your target statement and what you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. For, for me, for instance, I would never do well with an outdoor business like landscaping. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm an office gal. <laughs> my, my wife actually started a, a landscaping business um, after college, and I think she did it for like 12 months, and all of a sudden she was like, I'm 24 and my back hurts. Like, this isn't going to work for me. <laughs> She's a science teacher now. Let, let's talk a little bit about the transition process. We talked a lot about getting the business. Let's talk about the transition process. And I know that you've got um, you know, a ton of lessons learned um, distilled in your book, but is there one thing that um, you, know, uh, you would advise somebody who's just getting the keys to the, their new kingdom to think about as they enter their uh, new business? I'll tell you the biggest surprise. And this is, this is totally, I, I feel like it's totally anecdotal, even though over and over it's my experience, okay? And it's a surprise, I think, to, to most buyers. And that's that I think as buyers, I don't know if I should share this, but I will. I think as buyers, we overestimate the importance of the seller after the closing, okay? They're, they're really important for a very short amount of time. And, and every buyer, and again, now that I'm doing advisory work, I see it over and over again. And, 
And it's like we as buyers, all we have is, okay, I need all, I need to eliminate all of these concerns I might have on the other side of closing, right? So I'm going to lock in the, the seller for some time and, you know, so on and so forth. What I find is, is that, you know, over and over again, having that seller around um, is often more problematic than it is helpful, right? You want to try to get as much information from the seller as possible in a really short amount of time and then set the sun on them, right? It's, they don't want to be there. You won't believe how fast they lose interest, right? I mean, the whole thing for them has been an emotional roller coaster. This has been their baby. They've built it. They've done all of this stuff. And then the minute they sell it, it's like, wow, I have all of my incentive for being here is totally gone, right? Even if, even if they've got a salary, it's like, ah, they're kind of operating at half mast, right? And their employees, well, their former employees in this case, will still go to them, right? And it'll actually hinder your working relationships with your new employees. So I see it over and over again where um, I really, really want to lock in the seller for a short amount of time and then just get rid of them, get them out of there. That's where they want to be. That's where I want them to be. That's where the employees need them to be for things to truly move forward. So I would say that, you know, out of all of the things, that's something that I've just seen over and over that, that does surprise myself and, and others. Thinking about exiting since you've had successful exits, what are some lessons learned in the exiting process? So we're looking at it from the flip side. Let me think. Okay, so I work with a lot of sellers right now, and so let me kind of draw some of the lessons that I'm learning recently. I think that um, there are six things that that you really want to look at as a seller to understand how you're going to um, either increase the speed of exit or maximize the price, okay? And I do think that those two things um, you can't achieve both simultaneously. I do believe that. I think you kind of have to pick one and kind of wait, okay? The fundamental drivers of value are growth and earnings, okay? Earnings simply, you know, is this business making, you know, 50000 you know, um, um, you know, sorry, sorry, you know, is it making 50000 Is it making $5 million? Is it making $50 million? Like, wh- how much is it making, okay? Because that puts you in different ballparks. Then, it's, you know, what's the growth trend, okay? So look at your trailing 12-month and year-over-year. And basically, the, the whole thing for me is, you know, if you've got a million dollars in EBITDA, but you were $2 million last year, that's not necessarily any better, right, than having half a million in EBITDA, okay? So, so it's, it's, you know, what's the growth trend and what's going to happen with this business? Um, then you've got to have, you've got to clearly identify what are the business risks that, you, that a buyer is going to be taking on when they buy your business and try to minimize those as much as possible. Um, then you've got, um, uh, you know, transition. So, you know, do you have all those SOPs? Can you get yourself out of the business so you don't have to move your knowledge? Verifiability, you know, third-party verification, good books, all the rest of it, and growth opportunities. The, probably the biggest lesson I've learned with exiting is the bigger the growth opportunity you leave on the table for a buyer, the more you're going to sell your business for. So, like, you want to you want to take that first step and then you want to sell, okay? Because you show to the buyer that they're going to have a good future and that they have something immediately that they can jump on and grow. But like, you know, you've kind of, of, of uh, opened the gate for them so that they can not only, not only see it, but also see a little bit of proof as well. Uh, one, one exit I had, I, uh, uh, I, well, I'll, I'll tell you. I, so it was, it was the first exit I had. I ended up staying on board as an employee after after the exit, okay? And um, I went to get my hair cut. And uh, 
you know, the stylist was kind of cutting my hair, and she's like, oh, you sold your business? Like, tell me about it. And she's just cutting my hair, whatever. You know, and I'm like, yeah, well, and, you know, and now I'm, now I'm working at the company or whatever. And she stopped, and she looked at me, and she said, that never works. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was, you know, we're in like the basement of a hotel, and, you know, you know even she knew that. So it was, it was just like, you know, yes, it's like you're not an employee for years, and then you all of a sudden are one. It just isn't going to work out. You need to know that up front. <laughs> I think I lasted about 32 days. Is there a part of the process for you that even after your experience and all these different deals you've done that really never gets easier, even with experience? I think I would say, you know, probably just the closing process can be grueling if you get an SBA loan, okay? If you, if, if you know, I've done, I've done it a few different ways, and I think that, um, I know that sounds super lame, but I'm, it, it's almost like that's exactly the point. It's this really bureaucratic, process and you need all of these boxes checked that um, for just for you know real life purposes don't need to be and yet it, and yet it's it's like you know there's always a team of people and someone comes out at the 11th hour and they need this one document from this one other person and you know it's just like every single time if you get if you get an SBA loan you're done with diligence, the asset purchase agreement is signed, everyone's done, everyone's chomping at the bit to get going, and you're sitting around twiddling your thumbs for three weeks waiting for the bank, okay? And, you know, and, and just the, um, the closing process is something that, um, it's very detail-oriented, you can never quite anticipate everything that they want, and it's, it's boring. <laughs> and it comes right at the wrong time, and you just want to get started. You're, you're thinking business strategy, customers, product improvement, marketing, and they're like, um, hey, I don't have, you know, Form 52B filled out. And you're like, oh, okay, so let me get that. Let me get that. What else do you need? And it, it seems like there's a never-ending list of new items. And so are there, along those lines, are there, there are lessons that you've learned along this process that um, you really only could have learned by doing it, that even listening to interviews or reading, you still don't, you're still not able to understand the lesson until you're doing it yourself or making that mistake yourself? I won't say, I won't say a mistake. I'll, I'll just say we all want a process, right? We all want to know what the end is, and we all just want to do the steps and get there, okay? One of the things that I've learned is that every deal, every deal falls off the rails at one point or another, okay? And you work through it. And I can almost tell you now when it is, okay? And, it, and it's during the negotiation of the of the contract, okay? Like it's once the lawyers come in, you know, and they're all like defending their clients, and it's it's just you know you've got to take the time to cut through the lawyers and just buyer seller one on one come to terms, agree, and and you know let them sort of do their work. But but the thing is is that once you start getting to that level of detail, it becomes really emotional for everybody. There's a lot at stake you know, everyone's spending money and the deal's gonna fall apart, okay? It does. In fact, if you talk to intermediaries, what you'll find is if you're going into closing and the deal hasn't fallen apart yet, they're nervous because they know it probably won't close. <laughs> so that that's something that, you know, you can't really put, like in my book, I've got the process of how to do this and you don't really put an arrow like right here is where it falls apart because you don't know When's that going to happen, right? And it's just kind of it's just kind of something that that I see over and over, and it's it's just the human the the messy human part of you know the team sport of you know acquiring a business. 
And is there a good way to recover from that? I would assume if there's a, a deal that's falling apart, you know, both sides, there's a lot of um, emotions and maybe frustration. How do you come back and, you know, still fi- end up closing? Lean on the broker. So again, I've, I've, tried, to cr- I've tried to close deals without one and um, it's never worked for me. It's just never worked because you've got to have that, that middle person who is truly incentivized to just lead everyone to the common goal. And there are, there are times in negotiation and deal-making where the only move is to kind of step back from the table, right? And that's when you get to, you know, let the broker do their work and bring everyone back and, you know, get everyone under the common goal and just move forward. Just remember why you're doing it and leverage that middleman. Walker, thank you very much for your time. We don't want to overstep your schedule. So thank you very much for sharing your time with us, Karen, and I really appreciated it. Yeah, we really yeah, enjoyed it. Yeah, Alex, yeah, Karen, thanks so much. I really appreciate being here. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. We are a new podcast and leaving us reviews helps us tremendously. Please leave one if you feel so inclined. For show notes and more information, please visit our website at thinklikeowners.com.